The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. This is Psalm chapter 32, and as you know, over the last few weeks, we've been doing selective, selected psalms, and I always know where I want to go, and I never get there. You know, it's like God has a different idea of where, where he wants me to go. And so Psalm 32 is just that kind of book. And as I've been studying through some of these psalms and, and where I was planning to go to build on Psalm 23 from last week, I find myself in a very unique psalm. And if you're there in Psalm 32, let's just look first of all at the first six verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, surely in the rush of the great waters. Now, Psalm 32 is the second of so-called penitential psalms. It's the psalms of great forgiveness and crying out to God. And the psalm might be better called the giving of instruction. Because what we find David doing here is instructing us based on what he's been through. He is taking personal experience and he's given instructions based on that. And David had sinned. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had manipulated the battle plan to get her husband out on the front lines to get him killed. He had tried to ignore it and hide it for some time. And that's what's so significant about verse 2, the second part, when he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, because David was a master at deceit. He was trying to cover up the wrong that he had done. But when the prophet Nathan came to him and exposed the transgression... David confessed it openly and was immediately restored. Psalm 51 is the immediate expression of that confession and restoration. It breathes with it the emotion of the moment. Now, I don't know what you came in with this morning. I don't know what heavy burden you're carrying. But understand that David committed adultery, covered it up with murder, and God forgave him. Whatever you're carrying this morning, you need to look at this testimony of David because it's powerful. Psalm 32 seems to have been the written, uh, written later than Psalm 51 because it is an expression of what David had claimed in chapter 51. Chapter 51, verse 13, David said, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. This teaching is believed to be Psalm 32. 
So the sin confessed in 51 has resulted in his doing what he said he would do. He is so elated about the forgiveness and the mercy that he has that he wants to tell everyone of that great news. And that ought to be the heart of every one of us. So the psalm certainly functions as an instruction because later Paul quoted it in, the first, in his uh, verses in, in uh, Romans chapter 4, and he used David's testimony as proof that justification is by grace through faith alone. And it seems significant for our understanding of Psalm 32 that of all of David's writings and all the things that are assigned to him, Paul would pick the first two verses of Psalm 32 to bring his point to bear. He linked David's testimony to the experience of Abraham, quoted in Genesis 15, verse 8. And look what he said in Romans 4, 1 through 8. What then shall we say was granted by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So let's just look at this blessedness for a minute. The first stanza, verses 1 and 2, begins with a jubilant note. It's expressing the joy of a person who's been forgiven. And this is only the second time in this book of in the uh, all the psalms that it begins with the word blessed and it's literally blessedness it's literally plural you remember that when we were in psalm 1 in the best of parallel construction what he's doing here is expressing this overwhelming reality of forgiveness psalm 1 he is describing as the blessed man who walks in the way of God. He's blessed. He's led by green pastures. He's led by waters. All his needs are supplied. But in Psalm 32, we're talking a man who has not been following God, who's been outside in disobedience, is amazingly restored and brought into fellowship. That blessedness is off the chart, right? And if you've ever been in a situation where something could have really gone bad and you realize, I made it, the joy just kind of wells up, doesn't it? When you realize what could have happened, that's the kind of blessedness we're talking about here. We're talking about a man who knew his life was headed in the wrong direction. And instead of being absolutely destroyed and killed by an angry God, he's restored by a loving God. And his heart is just exploding out of his chest when he realizes that mercy. Now, these verses are another example of Hebrew parallelism. 
We talked about that when we were in chapter one, if you recall. And what it is, is it's taking a series of side-by-side words together in three lines to express a very key point. In the best of parallel construction, these are not mere synonyms, but words chosen to cover the entire spectrum of sin. So what David is going to do is he's going to cover every aspect of sin and show you and I how you and I can be forgiven if we repent and call on the name of the Lord. So let's look at these three words for sin that he touches on here. The first one is transgression. This literally means a going away or a departure, or in this case, a rebellion against God's authority. This is what makes sin so dreadful. His transgression is not only against other people that we hurt, but it is the root also of our sin against God. Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David realizes that of all the people he's hurt, He hurt Uriah. He sinned against Uriah because he had him sent to battle and he lost his life. He sinned against Bathsheba because he pulled her into his sin. He sinned against the nation and they paid dearly for it. But in light of the enormity of his sin against God, all these others pale. Alexander McLaren captures the essence and the power of what took place. He says, quote, You do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as the breach of the construction of your own nature or as a crime against your fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. So what you and I begin to understand is that the reality of our sin is against the one who created us. It's against the one who out of love and mercy came and gave his life on the cross for you and I. That's who our sin and rebellion is against. And this is what David is making so clear to us in these words. The second word is sin. And it is uh, nearly an exact equivalent of the Greek word, which means coming short or falling short of the mark. So in ancient times, the idea is of an archer who's aiming his arrow at the, the target, but his arrow falls short and hits the ground before the target. The target is God's law, and the sin described by this word is the failure to measure up. The third word is iniquity, and it means corrupt or twisted or crooked. It rounds out all the other terms in this way. The first transgression describes sin in view of our relationship to God. It pictures us as being in rebellion against him. The second word describes sin in relation to the divine law. We fall short of it and are condemned by it. And then the third word, iniquity, describes sin in relation to ourselves. It is a corruption or twisting of a right standard as well as our own being. 
Number two, and this is where it gets good, three words or phrases that says what God does with our sin if we repent and call on him. The first word he uses is forgiveness. Forgiven. It literally means to have our sin lifted off us. And before the sin is confessed, we bear it like a great burden. But when we confess it to God, he lifts it off our shoulders. So what is it that you're carrying this morning? What is it that as you've come in here is weighing you down? John Bunyan captured this well in Pilgrim's Progress where he describes Pilgrim coming to the cross, at which point his burden rolls off his shoulders and off his back and rolls away and keeps rolling till it comes to the sepulcher where it falls in and it's seen no more. This is what happens to all Christians when they come in repentance. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Now, let me remind you of something that we touched on last week in Psalm 23. Recall that Psalm 23 said, that he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And why did he do all that? For his name's sake. Now Isaiah is telling us here that he blots out our transgressions for his own sake. Understand we're not the center of the universe. He is. And what he does is for his glory. And when he says, I'm going to forgive you, when he says, I'm going to make you lie down in green pastures, I'm going to lead you by still waters, I'm going to restore your soul, you can take it to the bank because it's for him, not you. We're the byproduct. We reap the benefits of his great mercy. So where you and I can draw courage and strength this morning is knowing that no matter what is weighing you down, he will take it. But you've got to give it to him. You've got to let him have it. And knowing our weakness and knowing how we struggle with the flesh when we come to Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We have a plan through the Heavenly Father that is designed and promised to lead us through every situation, no matter what. Do you believe that this morning? My sin is gone, gone, gone. The second word is the word covered. And it's a strong religious term from the imagery of the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest took the blood from a, a, uh, an animal that was uh, sacrificed in the courtyard, and he brings it into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat, the seat which covers where the Ark, or the Ark of the Covenant, where the broken law is inside. And the idea is that it comes between our broken law and the presence of God 
who is seen as residing between the wings of the cherubim. So here this beautiful picture is the blood being placed between brokenness and God's justice. The Greek word for mercy seat means propitiation, which is the act of turning God's wrath aside. The Hebrew word is covering, the term used by David in Psalm 23. So what this means is you and I stand justified before a holy God. And when he looks at you, he sees you through the blood of his sons and your sins are remembered no more. That's mercy, folks. And that's what the Bible is presenting to you and I today. That same mercy. We are justified when we come to Christ. The third phrase, he does not count iniquity against us. So the third word means that to the one who repents, he does not count our sin against us, but he puts it on him. Now, the word is elsewhere translated impute, and it is a bookkeeping term, is what it is, as count especially suggests. So, it is the word used by Paul in Romans to explain how God writes our sin into Christ's ledger and punishes him for that sin, while at the same time imputing his righteousness into our ledger making us whole. And this is why Paul quotes these two particular verses in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. When you come to Christ, your sin will never, ever be counted against you. Ever. But what does the evil one do? Man, you've blown it, dude. God's not going to bless you. Ah, you're bad. You've gone the wrong way. Look, do you fully understand that when you confess your sins and repent, which is a turning away from them, you are justified in the sight of God? Do you know that blessedness this morning? Do you know that you can have peace in the sight of God no matter what you've done? Yeah, but preacher, you don't know what I've done. (laughs) David committed adultery and covered it with murder. How are you doing? He covers all of your sins. And that ought to cause us like David to want to tell transgressors of the forgiveness. To shout it from the mountaintops. Because of what he's done for us. Now, if you go to 1 John chapter 1, there's this swaying battle that goes. We know 1 John 1, 9 real good. But just listen to how the battle ebbs and flows between humanists and God's promise. Humanists and God's promise. He says, 1 John 1, 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Listen, come to Christ and be forgiven. Come to Christ and have the load taken off you. Come to Christ and tell others. That's what Psalm 32 is telling us. Now we come to the central important part of this whole book, and that's David's testimony. The second stanza of this psalm is a recollection of David's experience of unconfessed sin and of the immediate result of his confessing. Look look at Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning of all day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. And now notice. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Simply. Verses 3 and 4 describe the malaise of the believer who is trying to ignore his or her sin. Do you know what malaise means? It means a general sense of being unwell, often accompanied by fatigue, diffused pain, or lack of interest in activities. David says, that his very bones seemed to be wasting away and that his strength was drawn out of him as if he were exposed to the heat of the summer day. Listen, when you're carrying the weight of sin, it not only messes with your emotions, it not only messes with your mind, it messes you physically. You're broken down. You hurt. Things are pain. Things can, can just come down upon you. And David is saying, that was me. That's who I was during that time. My very bones were aching. The reason, of course, is that the Lord's hand was heavy upon him in judgment, as it will be for every one of us who ignore our sin. Are you weighed down this morning? Wouldn't you like to be free from it? But I need to point something out here that I don't want you to miss. And it's very critical here. We're not talking about a stranger to God here. We're talking about a man who God said about David, he is a man after my own heart. You know what that says to you and me? If we claim to be Christ, you're not getting away with it. Because he loves you too much. He loved David. He loved him. He was a man after his own heart. And he was going to oppress him until he broke through. So understand, if you are one of God's chosen people, you cannot ignore it, and he will not ignore it. Here's my fear, that you sin and have no weight from it. What is really striking about the second stanza, is verse 5, in which David explains how God forgave his sin once he confessed it. God forgave it completely, immediately, 
and it was never brought up again. So if Psalm, this Psalm 32 is David's testimony, then verse 5 is the heart of it. In the same way, our experience of forgiveness of God in Christ should be the heart of our spiritual experience. It ought to be the moment that drives our lives from this point forward. But also notice that verse 5 contains each of the three words for sin introduced in verses 1 and 2. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. At the beginning of the psalm, the words were chosen to cover the scope of all the sin that was on David. But here the words are used to show that these sins were forgiven. He did not hold back from confession in any area. And thus, all his sin was forgiven. David confessed it all. God forgave it all. And the slate was wiped clean. Wouldn't you like to have your slate wiped clean? The best part of forgiveness was it was done immediately. Notice he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and then immediately says, and you forgave my guilt. Now, I want you to notice something else here that's very interesting. At the right of the text, there is three occurrences of the word Selah, which are put there on purpose. If you're thinking of a song, the musical interlude between the verses is kind of a break to have you reflect on what has just been sung. What Selah literally means is pause and take notice. That's what it means. He, the writer says, okay, stop and take notice. One occurrence of the word is immediately before verse 5. After David's description of the debilitating effects of unconfessed sin, he says, Selah, people, stop and take notice. Look at my condition as a sinner. Stop, hear the words of my heart. The next occurrence is immediately after verse 5, after the, after the words, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, stop, take notice. I'm a sinner going to hell, wretched, lost. Or I'm a Christian struggling with sin in my life. Notice, listen. But then I'm one who's forgiven in my repentance to him. Oh, don't miss that. So the word Selah is put there powerfully by the Holy Spirit. And it says, stop and listen to my words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteous. Get it once and for all. This is the identical sequence in the story of the prodigal son. The son had sinned against God. You know the story. He, he, wanted his, he wanted his inheritance early. And the father gave it to him. And he went to the city and he just squandered it on riotous living, harlots, partying, and it was gone. And he finds himself broke, working with the pigs, and even eating the slop that was fed to the pigs. He's about as low as you can get. And he's broken. 
And so he decides to do something about it. And Luke 15, verse 18 says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Beautiful pattern of forgiveness. What he plans to do is he plans to go back and to confess. And he's going to go back and he's going to, look, Dad, I don't even want to be in your house. I'm not worthy. I'm a loser. I've blown it. I'll just live in the barns with the hired hands. That's all I want to do. And so he plans to do this. And he's got it all worked out what he's going to say to his father. But he doesn't actually get to do this. He starts to confess. But before he finishes, the father's already called the servants. And Luke 15, verse 22 through 24 says, But the father said to the servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. The second you come to Christ, he puts the royal robe on you. And he puts the ring of ownership on your finger. And you are forever royalty. That's the amazing thing about grace. And that is an insight into the nature of God. God is ready, even yearning to restore you. He's yearning to give you and bless you. He just says, come. Repent and let me do with you what I did to David. Let me do with you what I did for the prodigal son. Let me give you the most restoring grace I can. Can you imagine how that prodigal son felt? You know what? It gets better. Because God uses the repented sinner. Psalm 51, after David has confessed his sin and he asks God to forgive him, he says in Psalm 51, 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. We find the same thing in Psalm 32 because having experienced the forgiveness of God, David next and naturally turns to others exclaiming, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found, verse 6. He wants everyone to experience the amazing joy that he's experienced. And you know what? That's why I preach. That's why Sunday school teachers teach. That's why Bible study leaders lead. That's why people work with children's ministries in Awana. That's why people go out in the streets because they want to proclaim the amazing forgiving grace of God. And he's offering it to all who will come to him freely. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's a free gift. David gives two reasons why you and I should do exactly what he did. First, because today is the day of opportunity, a time 
when God may be found, verse 6. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to God, for he will abundantly pardon. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. Isaiah starts, seek the Lord while he may be found. It is a great day that you and I are living in the age of grace, in a time when God is not far from us, Acts 17, 27. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says this, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What are you waiting for? There's no guarantee of tomorrow. Christians, what are you waiting for to repent? There may not be a tomorrow. And implied in David's word is the sobering teaching that the day of grace will not last forever. The second reason we should do what David did is because God will protect the repentant. Psalm 32, verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah, get it. Pause. Listen to what I just said. Listen to what I'm saying. You are a hiding place for me. You know what's so amazing about David's testimony? David had been hiding from God, but now he's hiding in God. Think about that. It prompted the hymn writer to write years ago, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. He's our hiding place. He's our protector in a time of storm. He's our insulator and provider. So we find finally the great promise. The psalm could have stopped at verse 7 and have been overwhelming. But David adds a final stanza on spiritual and moral guidance. He calls to those who have experienced forgiveness and guidance to rejoice and to praise him and to follow him. Notice what he says, Psalm 32, 8 through 10. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding what must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. <clears throat> now look how intimate this is. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. That means, folks, that every decision you ever have to make, he will give you the direction. That means when you get into the word of God and trust him, the spirit leads you into all truth. I know I said this before, but if you want the spirit to lead you, give him to something to work with. Get into the word of God. He will teach you. But not only that, he will counsel you with his eye upon you. We often refer to the New Testament where it says his, his eye is on the sparrow. Not one sparrow falls that he doesn't see. And he intimately says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, 
he never takes his eye off you. His eye is on you every waking moment and every sleeping moment. His eye is on you to counsel you in the way you should go. So he says, stop being like a horse or a mule without understanding. Who has to have a bit in his mouth? It's got to be yanked and steered the way he should go. Do you ever feel that way? It's like you knock your head against the wall and you fall into sin here and you make it right and you confess it and you get right and you fall and you go. He says, don't be that way. Because you'll be like these horses and you won't stay near to him. Which is like the sheep of Psalm 32 who are prone to wander. They are in a beautiful green lush field with wonderful clear water. And they wander away to a burned out field, water that's not drinkable. And aren't we prone to do that? Just don't be like that. Because many of the sorrows of the wicked. But look at this. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. When you trust him, his love overwhelms you. His hand of protection surrounds you. And he leads you in the way that he should go. And why? For his glory. He will do it because he's promised he will do it. He will do it because that's his goal. He will do it because he sent his son to die on the cross for you. He will do it because he has promised all through the scriptures that he will lead us and guide us. When you surrender, there is no losing in Christ. There is no losing in Christ. How long can we simply go our own way? When all of heaven stands ready to save and guide the one that repents, how long will we go our own way? He is offering an amazing life. But how long can we make our own plans, set up our life on all the things we want, and just move ahead and ignore him? When all of heaven is there to surround you and draw you to him. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And verse 11 closes it by saying, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteousness, and shout for joy, all ye upright in heart. He wouldn't say that if it wasn't possible. You can go out these doors this morning rejoicing and praising God and shouting it to the mountaintops. Or you can go out here with your mind singled on to your own glory and wanting to do what you want to do. The question I ask you is, who are you? As we close this morning, I want you to listen to the words of this song as you think deeply into your heart. Who are you this morning? call to you 
Father, are we men and women after your heart? That's the question of the day. And Lord, I pray if there are any here who do not know you as the God of their heart, that you might bring them to one of us that we may sit down and show them from your word how they can be forgiven and have eternal life. And Lord, if there are any here this morning, Christians who know you, but yet they've strayed, I pray, Lord, that that question would burn in them all day. Am I really after your heart? David's forgiveness was so amazing that he couldn't stop talking about it. May we have that same deep desire. And we'll trust you, Lord, for what you will do in the hearts of each one of us today. And all God's people said, God bless.